You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. Welcome back into Play by Playcast, everybody. It is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. My name is Joel Gadet. I'm the television and radio voice of the Ball State University Cardinals, and you can find me on social media at Joel Godet, or you can find the podcast at PXPCast. Email me as well, J G O D E T T at BSU. It is the podcast where we dive into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. Today, we have a first-time guest, long-time listener, or, well, first-time guest listener, Corey Provis, radio voice of the Minnesota Twins, who has been listening to PXPCast for, I don't know, probably a couple of months now, um, found the podcast, followed me on Twitter, we began conversing that way, and this episode uh, comes your way. And it happens to drop on the day that Major League Baseball teams across the country have returned to practice at their various stadiums. We are about three weeks away from the return of baseball season, at least at the Major League level. For all of you out there that are minor league broadcasters, it sucks. Uh, I, I was a minor league broadcaster 2009, 10, 11, 12, and 8. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I was a minor league broadcaster from Salem, Virginia, to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, to Buffalo, New York, to Bradenton, Florida. It's an awesome experience, and uh, I I hurt for those uh, guys and girls out there that aren't going to get to call games this summer, uh, and some that are in uh, potentially more perilous situations than that. But I, I also ache for people that aren't just broadcasters because one of the things that I love about not being a minor league baseball broadcaster anymore is that I get to go to minor league baseball games. It's something I just enjoy doing. Like It's great to call a game and sit in the press box and get that view of it. Baseball is my favorite sport, so I love broadcasting it. But I almost enjoy it more just to go sit on the berm and without responsibility, just take it in. Go to different ballparks, go to different places, see the types of food that different ballparks have, the different vantage points, the different types of things that different minor league teams do. I am a geek for minor league crazy names and logos and merch and mascots. Like I love everything that is just wild and nuts about minor league baseball and missing the fact that you know I can't take that in and that that impacts all of the people that uh, work so hard to allow all of us as fans to have that experience. So uh, here's to a speedy rest of the summer and a speedy off season and the arrival of 2021 so that we get some minor league baseball back as well. 
Uh, for the here and now on this episode, though, Corey Provis joins us as a guy that has called a little bit of minor league baseball in his career. He did some work as the voice of the Auburn Double Days right out of college. But then Corey took a route through collegiate athletics, working at Virginia Tech and then at UAB. And then he broke into Major League Baseball at a fairly young age. Before the age of 30, he wound up back in Chicago alongside Ron Santo and Pat Hughes, working with the Chicago Cubs. And from there, he sat next to Mr. Baseball and worked with the Milwaukee Brewers and Bob Euchre. And then he would move on to his current role with the Minnesota Twins. Along that, he has some pretty awesome stories to tell, and we will dive into all of that. But we start at Syracuse University because, yes, Corey Provis is one of us. He is a member of the Newhouse Mafia. And Actually, when you go to WAER Radio, the student station, one of the student stations there, there's a picture of Corey hanging on the wall, interviewing lacrosse coach then and now, John Desco. And he is one of the guys. There's a, a wall. There's I don't even remember. There's like four pictures on this wall. One of them is this gathering of like the greats. It's two rows of people seated, and it's like Marv Albert, Bob Costas, Mike Tirico, Ian Eagle, um, Len Berman is in it, uh, and like the picture next to it is is Corey Provis interviewing John Desco. So forever cemented in WAER lore, and that is where we begin on today's episode with the voice of the Minnesota Twins. His name is Corey Provis. So I, I've only been back, you know, because of, of my summer job. I, I don't get back Joel to Syracuse all that often. And I want to say, since I've graduated, I've only been back maybe you know four or five times over the years. And I, I did after WAER moved out of Newhouse Two um, into their new location down the street. I, I stopped in there one day, and then I saw that picture. Um, that I think it's I'm interviewing John Desco, the uh, the, the Syracuse lacrosse coach. Yep. Um, and I, I didn't know that was going to be in there and uh, it brings back a, a funny story because, um, so our junior year, when we're talking about, cause I believe that was John Desco's first year as a head coach. And you may know this more than me, but I think his first year was out of like 97 or 98, uh, when he was the first year head coach. Of, of Syracuse the Cross, you know, we were spitting around ideas in the studio about what what should we name the pregame interview, and so it was myself and Jason Chandler and Gideon Cohn, who's now my agent, uh, but was uh, was a is, is a good friend, but we also did radio together at, at AER. But the three of us are going around, and and I had this idea of like, why don't we call it at the desk with John Desco? <laughs> And that was immediately, immediately ruled down. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't have it didn't have much legs to it. But when I when I we, that was just an idea we were spitballing. But I remember just the laughter that and the faces that that, that both Chandler and Gideon they had towards my way about why don't we call it at the desk with John Desco and Chandler was like what desk are you talking about there's no desk just talk about the game and talk about the team so it's funny that you bring up that picture because that's the first thing that comes to mind with uh, with John Desco but I was lucky during during my time at WAR uh, to be around so many talented men and women I, I was just there with a really good flock of talent uh, from James 
Jamie Say, to Adam Shine, to Andrew Catalan, to Carter Blackburn, uh, to Damon Amendolara. I mean, we were all separated. Matt Park. We were all se- Kevin Marr. We were all separated by a couple of Adam Zucker. We were all separated by a year or two, and some were in my class, and some were uh, a year younger. But it was a really strong Adam Cooperstein was around that that time as well. It was a really strong contingent of talent, and it was the kind of talent that you just you got better, and, and you also knew early on who the big players were going to be. Like I remember listening to a Jamie Say sportscast when I was a freshman, and I thought, man, she is she is awesome. Like she is what we aspire to sound like and write like, and that was kind of the goal. And we all knew that Adam Shine was going to be a talk show star. We knew that Carter Blackburn was going to be really good, whatever path he went down in the play-by-play sphere, if it was going to be TV or radio. You know, we, we, we just knew you could tell early on who the big hitters were going to be and the success stories were going to be. But then I think back and look at their success now, but then I reflect back to when they were in, in college and they had this awesome work ethic. Like Adam Shine, he worked so hard to build the talk show staff, which did not exist at WAR until I believe his junior or senior year. So we're talking about, you know, 97, 98, 99, that era, there wasn't a talk show department. And we started a talk show, and Adam was the guy that really took the bull by the horns. And we even had a sponsor. There was a deli in town called called, uh, Pickles Kosher Deli, (laughs) and they sponsored the, the first ever talk show. It was Pickles Kosher Deli Double Overtime. And they would sponsor the – it was all grant-driven, but they would sponsor the, 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 the post-game show after every SU football or basketball game. And it, it was so cool to, to, see, to see this group of people be there at the outset of what's now become, I think, a popular department within the uh, radio station. So th- that, to me, is what I, I look back on. Uh, the football was much better than the basketball. The basketball was not very good. Uh, the football team was, was, was winning so many games. They were ranked in the top 10, top 15. They were going to Orange Bulls, uh, being there with McNabb and, and you know, to Bucky Jones and Donovan Darius and Rob Conrad. You know, football was, was, was king uh, when I was there. So that, that's what I think back on was how, how competitive it was, but how much fun it was. And I think back to my, to my friends, really, that are my friends today. Many of my college friends, if not all of my college friends, remain the group of people that I, that I, that I worked at and I work with at WAR. You know, I'm actually kind of disappointed it wasn't Desco's desk because it's not much worse than yeah. Mike Check with Mike Hopkins. Um, so as far right. as so that was that was my thinking. So we had <laughs> we had Mike Hopkins. So I figured we needed kind of a fun little name. So I, I did kind of go down that down that path. Like, all right, we have Mike Check. So what's wrong with at the desk with John Desco? And boy, that that had no chance. It is still called the double overtime though. Although pickles, okay, is uh, I just did Great. a quick Google. Pickles is closed, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, okay. did you call the McNabb Virginia Tech game? I was, I was, uh, I was there. Yes, I, I was on the broadcast team. But the famous call was from John McCarthy, who everybody knows as Lou. 
Um, so John McCarthy was a year older. Uh, I did some broadcasting out of school, but now is an accountant in Boston. He's, he's one of my really good friends. But yeah, we we I was a junior. It was his senior year, and Adam Shine played a large role in me having that game because um, you know he he looked out for me and thought I was I was deserving to get a big assignment. So I got play by play for the first and third quarter. Uh, quarters of that game, and then I did color for the second and fourth. But the McNabb to Berminsky call, that was John McCarthy that had that epic call, uh, boy, more than 20 years ago. What was the uh, what was the best moment that you were a part of broadcasting at AER? Well, that that was pretty high on there because we saw we we saw, you know, we saw the, the, the students rush the field um, to see the game end, and that was the year before Michael Vick started his run at Virginia Tech. So that was that was just pre-Vic. But, they, but Virginia Tech was still a really good team. <laughs> and um, to see the crowd react and to see Marshall Street explode in a way that I could only dream that probably would have been comparable to, say, a Final Four run or a national championship run, which happened you know years later when I was already out of school. But that was probably the coolest moment I had in terms of broadcasting any one event any one game was that famous Syracuse uh, win over Virginia Tech at the Dome on the McNabb to Berminsky uh, throwback across the field. I could still see it to this day, the left pylon, uh, the end zone there, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget that moment. Poor Bill Roth, just torn inside. Yeah, and that's another thing. So then Bill Roth, then like a year or so later, you know, he has, you know, Vic has this big run against against Syracuse and I believe was at the Dome and he played this call as part of his, uh, his scene setter for years working at Virginia Tech and I, I worked for him out of school so I heard this thing just ad nauseum all the time <laughs> and, his, and his line was that Michael Vick drives a dagger right into the hearts of the Orangemen and I'm like, how could you say that? How could you say that with that much passion? But then I learned. But but he was right. But that was uh, that was later on. But I, I never really heard Bill's call though of the of the McNabb Berminsky game. I've never heard it from from the opposite side. But knowing him, I'm sure it was I'm sure it was great. I'm sure he had a really good call. I'm sure he was bummed because he had to be. But I'm sure he still delivered nonetheless. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about tech and uh, some of the other stops you had early in your career. We we talk a lot about path on this podcast and how no one path is the same. Um, but how did yours play out out of college in terms of uh, the way that it set you up? And uh, you, you you bounced around a couple of times, but each time with a really big step forward and a, and a really big purpose. And to go from Va Tech to UAB and then wind up in Chicago at 28 years of age. Um, what happened for you in those first five, six years out of school that really set you up to be on the path you wound up? Well, it's, it's cool that we're, we're doing uh, this, this, this chat now, Joel, because uh, it, it's really we're approaching the 20-year anniversary of a very important decision that I made professionally. Um, it was right out of school. I graduated in 2000. So it had to be, I'm guessing, in July. I don't know the exact date, but in July uh, of 2000, I was just out of school. So I was, what, 22 years old, and, uh, and I was looking for a job. 
And I thought my first job out of school was going to be in Charleston, West Virginia, working for another SU grad and Tony Caridi. Um, I, I, I interviewed with him, and I thought I was going to get it. I was going to live in Charleston, and I was going to anchor – uh, news throughout the week on the Mountaineer News Network, Monday through Friday. But then on weekends and nights, I would shift and do high school football and high school basketball play-by-play, and it was a full-time job, and I was really excited. I really thought that that it was going to be my first job out of school, and I didn't get it. So then I was sending out you know resumes and, and tapes, and nothing really was, was firing. But then Ron Gleason, who is now part of the Bears' broadcast team on uh, on WBBM in Chicago. But in the summer of 2000, he was the sports director of one of the all-sports stations in Chicago called The Score, which is still around to this day. And they had an opening for an update anchor. And it was going to be a full-time job. So I, I sent my tape in for that, and he liked my tape. At the same time, I got a phone call from Dave Pash, now, my senior year of, uh, at Syracuse, so this was the spring semester of 2000, Dave Pash was just wrapping up his first year as, as the voice of the Orangemen. You know, he was, he was you know, an AER grad, but he was brought back to, to call SU games um, on the network station in town. But he was also an adjunct professor, and Dave taught the second semester, he taught a sports play-by-play class. And I had some credits to kill, and I thought it'd be kind of fun, but the only problem was that it was a Friday morning, like 8.30 class. Now, as a senior, the last thing you want to do <laughs> your last semester of school is take a Friday 8.30 a.m. class. But I, but I took it, and it was the, one of the best decisions I made because I got to know Dave, and that summer of 2000, Bill Roth called Dave Pash and said, hey, we have an opening to do Virginia Tech women's basketball. Do you have anybody from, from Syracuse AER that you would recommend? And Dave recommended me. So Bill reaches out to me and Dave reaches out to me and I said, absolutely, I'm interested. Yeah, I want to learn more about it. So I went down to Blacksburg for the interview and that went well. I met with Bill, I met with others, I met with Bonnie Hendrickson, who was the head coach at the time. And it went really well, and then I was offered the job. Meanwhile, I was still in the running for the job in Chicago. And I was torn about what to do here because Virginia Tech needed an answer. Bill Roth needed an answer if I was going to take it or if he was going to go somewhere else. Do I go play-by-play in a small town not knowing anybody, or do I press my luck and ride it out, and at 22 years old I can be on regularly – in my hometown, in my home market, in the number three market in the country at 22, and try my luck and, and being in Chicago. So I ended up calling Ron Gleason, and, and I told him, look, I'm not asking if you can promise me the job, but I have this offer in Blacksburg, and I'm going to take it unless you tell me otherwise. And he could not guarantee me the job. He said, you're in the running, but I can't guarantee you the job. So at that point, in around July of 2000, I made the decision to pass up Chicago and take the play-by-play job at Virginia Tech. And that set me on the path of doing play-by-play and strictly play-by-play because if not, and that's what I always wanted to do, if I, just, if I stayed in Chicago and say I got that job, all I was going to be doing was probably updates and maybe going, maybe going out to cover teams and gather sound and file reports. 
which would have been neat, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm. So I, in my gut, I knew I wanted to do play-by-play, and that decision was made to, to take that job, to take that chance in the summer of 2000 with Bill Roth and Virginia Tech. Do you remember what your mindset was at 28 years old? Because, like, uh, even now I think about how I would approach, like, applying for a major league baseball job. Um, and I, I can imagine what I would have thought when I was 28 years old trying to do that. Um, what was your approach reaching out to the Cubs and saying, not only do I know I can do this, but I know I'm the person you need to hire? So it goes back to that, that same summer of 2000 when I had the job at Virginia Tech. I grew up listening to WGN Radio in Chicago. I used to listen with my dad, driving to school. I just loved the station. I loved all the personalities. I just And I listened to games, of course. I listened uh, to Harry, and I listened to, of course, Pat Hughes. And I, and I just was a big fan of the radio station. The sports director at WGN Radio to this day, his name is Dave Ennett. Uh, he's, he's been calling Northwestern yeah. football and basketball for years. He's in Northwestern Hall of Fame. So in the summer of 2000, I, I, I was able to connect with him somehow, some way, and I sent him a tape, a uh, cassette tape. And I said, look, here's my work. I'm not looking for a job. I have a job, but I just want to introduce myself to you. Here's my work. And, and that was it. So I went down there and I met him and I gave him my tape. We sat, we talked for a little bit, and then I went about my business. But then once or twice a year, I would send him an email about what I was doing and where I was. So, you know, I just finished up, say, my second year at Virginia Tech. This would have been, what, the end of the 2001 season. Hey, Dave, you know, I'm wrapping up my second year. Here's what I've been doing. Uh, you know, please keep me in mind. Should anything open up uh, in the future? Now, one of your previous guests on this podcast, I, I wanted Andy Mazur's job. Like, I thought Andy Mazur had a really cool job. And that was the job that I always had my eye on. Be like, that would be a really fun job if I can get it. And then you go ahead to 2006. Uh, I, uh, now I'm in, I'm in Birmingham. I just finished. Actually, let's go back to 2005. I interviewed for... I interviewed for the UAB job, and the athletic director was also the head football coach. His name was Watson Brown. And as I'm sitting in his office talking about the job, he said, look, we like your work, but we, you know, we don't want this to be a stepping stone right away. We want you to be here for a while. I said, coach, you know, I, I, I love college. I see myself on this college play-by-play path. You know, I'm a big Cub fan. I don't see the Cubs knocking down my door with a job offer the next year, so I think you're all right. So, so I, I do that first year in 2006 uh, with, with UAB football and UAB basketball. And then the Bears are playing in the Super Bowl in 2006. They're playing the Colts in Miami. And Andy Mazur is a finalist for the Padres play-by-play job to work with Ted Leitner and uh, the Colonel. And so he, they're, they're, he's in this, 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 this circle of finalists. At that point, I reach out to Dave Ennett and say, hey, I read that Andy might get this job. Again, can I send you my updated reel? And he said, yes, by all means, send it. So I had it, I had it ready to go. And then the moment that I saw that Andy got that job, it was FedEx the next day. But the, the thing was, from 2000 to 2006, it wasn't like Dave was wondering, hey, wh- wh- what, have you been, what have you been doing and wh- where have you been? 
So he knew exactly what, where I was and what I was doing. And, and then when the job came open, I, you know, I, I, I went after it. I really went after it hard. And I thought, you know what, if I could just, if I could just get an interview, cause I was told that I, that I always interviewed for jobs well. And this goes back to a job I did not get when I was working at ISP sports in Winston-Salem. I was a finalist for the Houston Cougar play-by-play job in 2004 or 2005 and I didn't get it. I was told I was the number two choice. And then I was working also on Georgia Tech's broadcast with West Durham and Dave Brain with the AD at Georgia Tech at the time. And Dave told me, he said, look, this may be tough to hear, but before you could be number one, you're likely going to have to be number two. And I never forgot about that. And when I saw so I wasn't too discouraged that I didn't get the job because I thought I interviewed really well for it. And I, I just gained experience uh, after that process and confidence. And then the Cub job came open and it was a whirlwind, man. It was a, the Cubs were wrapping up spring training um, in Arizona. And I went out there, it was the last week of spring training. And I went out there for an interview from Alabama to interview with um, some of the Cubs executives. And this was a WGN job. This wasn't a Cubs job. This was a WGN job where the Cubs had to sign off on the hiring. So I interviewed with John McDonough, who was uh, the president of the team at the time, interviewed with Mike Lafrano, who was in charge of the broadcasting, interviewed with Peter Chase, who was in charge of uh, communications and PR. And then I sat down with Pat Hughes and Ron Sano. Now, that to me was just, uh, that was like fantasy camp. I, I, did, I was more nervous about that than I was meeting with Cubs executives. And then when Pat told me, he said, look, I think you, I think you have the job. They wouldn't have flown you out here from, from Birmingham if, if, if we didn't think you were going to get it. And it wasn't until that moment that I was like, oh, I'm really going to get this job. And then I flew back home, and it was a Monday in Birmingham, and I was in the shower. And I, I didn't want to miss any phone calls. I'm taking the quickest shower of my life. I got pretty much the shower door open. Um, and just as I got out, Dave Ennett from WGN called me and offered me the job. So it was a Monday. I packed up my little garden home, whatever I could, in, in Hoover, Alabama. And I left, I left Alabama Wednesday, drove back to Chicago, got in late Wednesday night, repacked. I was at my parents' house, repacked, because uh, then Thursday morning took a flight out from Chicago to Vegas. The Cubs were playing their last two spring training games in Vegas against Seattle. And I flew out Thursday. I shadowed a broadcast Friday. I was on the air Saturday. Uh-huh. So I went from Birmingham Monday to that Saturday going on WGN and the Cubs network in a span of five days. So I didn't really have a lot of time to wrap my head around what all this was because it happened so late and that fast. What's interviewing for a job of that magnitude like? Just like I think about like we had Benetti on this podcast and he talked about getting the White Sox job and sitting down with Jerry Reinsdorf. And in my mind, I'm going, yeah, that's, that's something um, I, I, what, that 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 would be a weird conversation for me. Like if I walked into a room with Jerry Reinsdorf, what would I say? Um, what's it like for you to sit down with an executive like that um, when you start getting into the Brewers and the and the Twins job as well and trying to prove yourself as who should be trusted as the voice of an organization like that? Well, I think you have to, I've always had the mindset, and this is something that I started when I graduated from school about how can I, how can I separate myself 
from other candidates. How can I, because I think we all maybe sound the same. You know, some have, you know, deeper voices. Some have better use of, of vocabulary. Some inflect better than others. Some write better than others. But what can we all do if we're all in the same group? Then I thought, all right, how can I, how can I separate myself from the pack? And at first I thought presentation perhaps could go a long way. So as I would send out tapes and then later CDs of my work on CDs, especially I put, I print out, you know, labels, sticker labels that I put on the CD with my name, the tracks, but also put the mascot of the school. So when I was applying for Houston, I put the UH logo on the label. Uh, when I was applying for UAB, did the same thing for Tulane, did the same thing. I always thought about presentation. With the Cubs, what I wanted to do, and this wasn't so much with, with the Cubs executives, this was more with WGN, because I had a first interview with them before that flight out to Arizona. I first had to fly to Chicago to interview with WGN. I thought it was cool to mention sponsors. I thought it'd be, it would help my cause to mention sponsors. So I would say, because I knew listening to Andy Mazur as much as I did and listening to that broadcast as much as I did, when I was doing a scoreboard update, it wasn't just a scoreboard update. It was a square D scoreboard update. It was part of the power at Wrigley Field. It was, it was old style. I knew it was a WGN sponsor. Budweiser was a Cubs sponsor. It was trying to always find little ways to separate myself from other candidates. Now, maybe they were all doing the same thing. I didn't know. But I thought that if I did those little things early, that would stand out to executives to give them a different perspective, to give them a different answer. So that's how I always thought on the front end. On the back end, it was about just showing personality, but not like you own the room. And I got, I got taken to the principal's office one time in my, in my big league career. And it was something that I screwed up and I, and I learned from it. I haven't done it since. When I use the, the cliche, like, this isn't my first rodeo. Well, that's one thing to say around your friends. It's not something to say when you're 28 years old and, you're in, and, and the traveling secretary of a big league team hears you say that. <laughs> that's the last thing that needs to happen. So, and it happened, and I learned. And um, so it was just, it was listening, but, but going in with, with questions. That, because you, you're going to get it. You're going to get the executive saying, hey, they're talking to you for a while, and then they're going to want to know, is there anything that I can answer? So being prepared with questions, not so much about pay. Don't, don't worry about that, but just expectations, work ethic, um, getting along with people, how to help out other departments. That was a part of my job at WGN was to help out the sales staff if they needed players to have to read liners. That was something that I was happy to do, and that that is something that you just can't go in, you know, with his with his mindset that I'm just going to do play by play, I'm just going to do the pregame show, I'm just going to do the postgame show. You have to be open minded and ready and willing to help as many people as possible, because if you don't, they're going to remember that more than how you sound. Let's talk about how you sound a little bit. Um... I've read in a couple of different spots, like just like when I, when we do one of these, like I, I just pull up a bunch of articles and see what comes up. And one of the constant themes was people noted uh, how much 
you have a good time, how much you don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, there was one quote that actually said the, the one thing that someone liked about you was that you didn't take yourself too seriously and had the ability to laugh at yourself on the air. Um, the Twins release noted your sense of humor on the air. And that, I feel like, is something that can be difficult because a lot of times we think we're funny and we're really not. Um, and being able to convey that actual uh, enjoyment and humor and uh, affability on the air is a, is a difficult thing or sometimes more difficult than we give it credit for. Um, why for you does it work? And what have, what have you been able to, to figure out as terms, in, in terms of letting that side of your personality shine through? It works because that, that's who I learned from. It works because I learned from Bill Roth and Mike Burnup, who were nicknamed the Buffet Buddies, <laughs> who they had a job to do, but they had all these characters. You know, Bill was, you know, the, Bill was a bad driver. So Mike would sit shotgun and then Bill would drive and they'd get into an accident nearly every time they traveled to Miami or they were going to, you know, uh, Syracuse, wherever they were going. They would just, just be an incident that I know would come up on the air. Or Bill would forget a pair of socks in the hotel room and in the drawer, and, and Mike would call him Forgetful Freddy on the air. So I learned that early on that the idea that you have to take yourself so seriously and you have to put on this fake voice and you have to be so monotone, I learned from the get-go that that's, that's the wrong way to approach this. And then when I get to work with this big personality like Wes Durham, and it's almost like osmosis who has this guy has so much fun at what he's doing and like it's a job but it's like is it really a job i, I know we work <laughs> at it but this guy is just having the best time so then when i, I would listen to him every day you know do be, i was a part of his broadcast team doing pre and post and halftime for tech basketball and tech football for all those years that's where my foundation really began and then when i got the chance to build my own at uab that's what I wanted to, to continue. And then at the major league level, where I thought, my goodness, we're going to have to be so stiff. Well, then I meet these two characters, Pat and Ron. And then I get to, and I heard them forever, and I heard them laugh, but I was like, they can't really laugh that much. <laughs> but then you see it, and you're around it, and Ron Sano, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't even a choice. It was required that you had to laugh at yourself because nobody did it better than him. Nobody. Nobody that I've met in my life did it better than he did. And Ron Sano, for all of his ailments, never once complained. Never once complained about, you know, his prosthetics, about his heart, about his bladder, about his toupee, which he called a gamer. I mean, he never, he, he always was able to laugh at himself. And that's where it began for me. And then I go to Milwaukee and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm working with, <laughs> with Bob Euchre. Who is who appeals to everybody, not just baseball. That's different than, than Ron Santo. Ron Santo, he appealed to Cub fans and he appealed to, you know, those with, with diabetes. But Euchre, he appealed to baseball. He appealed to movies. He, he appealed to Johnny Carson. He appealed to television. Uh, he appealed to Miller Lite commercials. He he covers all all the bases. So you go from Santo to Euchre. And it's like, my goodness, we're going to do what? We're going to laugh like this. We're going to make, we're going to have all this, we're going to have this laughter go on every day. I couldn't help but bring that to what I do in Minnesota. And Dan Gladden's like that. He is so on board with, with being that way that 
when we first when I first met Dan, we went out to dinner, my wife and Danny and his wife, after I got the job in uh, in downtown Minneapolis, and he was telling me his story about he wasn't this destined broadcaster. He started in broadcasting by chance in 2000, and the radio station employed him at the time, WCCO, and said, "Hey, we just want you to be you." Well, if you know anything about Dan Gladden, he's he's a maverick, man. This guy, we are yin and yang. I mean, he's riding motorcycles and I'm riding Schwinn's. I mean, we are. He's <laughs> jumping off roofs. I'm staying on my couch. I mean, we are we are complete opposites, but it works because it's funny and it's entertaining. We don't miss anything. I hope that that people understand that we're not just up there doing comedy for three hours. We 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 get serious when we have to, but. We have to have fun. We really have to have fun, and that's my favorite compliment that that, that we've ever received as a team. It's not, boy, you know, I loved how you nailed that, that Nelson Cruz home run or that Irvin Santana shutout or that Joe Maurer at bat. It's just it sounds like you guys are having fun each and every day. And with all up until 2019, the Twins were terrible. I mean, they had a brief playoff run in 2017, but they were losing 90-some-odd games a year almost on average from 2012, you know, leading into 2019. So there wasn't a lot of good baseball that I watched up until, you know, 2019. So if you're not going to have fun, then you're probably going to drive yourself out of the game. Um, tell me about Bob Uecker. What, what, would people, what would people not know if they weren't around him on a daily basis? He is a really good broadcaster. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster. People think of Bob as funny, and people think of Bob as, as Harry Doyle and George from, from Belvedere and, you know, again, the Johnny Carson spots. But I, I think of Bob as, like, he nailed some awesome calls. I mean, the, the 2011 team was a really good Milwaukee team. Um, so to be there for and to listen to his call of Nigel Morgan's walk-off hit in Game 5 of the NLDS uh, to beat Arizona, that is a great call. Going back earlier, you know, Trevor Hoffman became the first closer to reach 600 saves. To hear him call that play, you know, ground ball to short, counsel, up with it, throws. He did it. I mean, that's a really good call. And I just love those moments of, of Bob calling big moments, fielder home runs, brawn home runs. Uh, I just I just always like the way that he calls a game. And then he taught me that you don't have to talk every second on the air, that you can let it breathe, let the game breathe. And I, I, you know, in college, you think like you're learn, you're taught that's the worst thing possible. That dead air is the worst thing. But is it really dead air? If you're not talking, is it truly dead air, or are there other sounds that are helping tell this story to those listening? And to me, the answer is yes. You're hearing vendors. You're hearing people chatting. You're hearing sounds of the game. You're hearing the PA announcer announce something in between at the at-bat. Um, that, to me, is part of it. So Bob's whole thing about let the game breathe, uh, I, I, it, it sticks with me every day. And I, I think about it every day that, that, that we're on the air. But he's funny. He's genuine. He was incredibly kind to me and my, and my wife. He was welcoming. He, was, he challenged me to get better because you're often by yourself. Um, you know, Bob and I, we weren't on the air a ton together, but if, if I wanted him on the air with me, I'd ask him, and he'd be on with me more times than not. But in the first inning, ninth inning, 
game starting, game is tight. My, your job is to stay out of the way and, and let Bob do his thing. Uh, he's a treasure, uh, but he made me better. And no doubt to have, you know, Bob Euchre on your resume and Ron Santo on your resume, that no doubt helped me get this job in Minnesota. How do you make a baseball broadcast different? And I don't mean that on a day-in and day-out basis, but more a, a year-in and year-out basis where, you know, there there are stories about people that I'm sure are, are ones that stick with you and that you really like, or when you see this guy, this will always come to mind, or um, being able to tell histories of things in different ways and not get to a day where it's like, you know not like a this day in baseball history moment, but like a some some sort of nugget of something where it's like, oh yeah, but we told that story last time we saw this team. Um, what's the way that you go about um, dredging up and, and organizing so that you know where it is when you need it? Uh, good information to keep stories, histories, teams, identities fresh. You know, I just, I'm somebody that, that I just retain things visually that I remember I can recall moments if I see them. Um, that's just how I process things. So I, I just remember moments uh, from players, past, present, if I just see it. Um, not so much the date, but I'll, I'll remember pretty much the, the, the nuts and bolts about what happened, the outcome and all that. That's something that I just, I don't know why, something that I, I just, it stuck with me as a kid. That's why I think I remember all these random movie lines from the 1980s that I just, if I see something, I can remember it. For me, in terms of the play-by-play mechanics, I try, I try to challenge myself every year. I don't listen to myself uh, very much. Um, you know, you catch them on the highlights here and there. If you put on MLB network and the highlights might be on there, or you see them on social media, but I don't make it a, a purpose, which is, which I don't recommend. It's not something that I, that I probably should do more of, but I just, and it's not like going back to Bob, this always surprises people, but Bob has never seen the movie major league start to finish <laughs> as good as he was in that movie. He's never sat down and watched the whole thing because He'll tell you that he could have done better with that line. That that line that we all love and we think is just a classic line. I'll say, nope, I, I was too early on the timing there. I could have inflected that word differently. In in that respect, I, I just think I, I it doesn't sound as good when I go back and listen to it, and vice versa. If I think I really botched a call, then I'm more prone to go back and listen to it. And more times than not, it's not as bad as as I thought it was. But in terms of play-by-play mechanics, how can I challenge myself? So instead of saying, you know, and this has evolved over the years that, you know, a swing a fly ball to right center, Buxton drifting back, reaches up and makes a cap high catch, one out. Maybe I would have said this fly ball to right center, Buxton ranging back to his left, reaches up, makes the catch. But I think adding cap high, I think adding, you know, near his left shoulder, makes the play. I, I think that, I think adding just more description is how I, I can challenge myself year in and year out. You know, that to me is what I, that's what I want to do. And, you know, I, I do the uniforms. Uh, people like them. Some do, some don't. Uh, but that's part of what I do. I just have my, the things that I like. And, uh, but I, but I try to challenge myself with, with the mechanics 
of the broadcast, what I can do every year, and just try to mix up my terminology a little bit more. And, you know, I, Bill told me this back when I was working with him, that I, that I really believe that if you're working in the medium of radio, I think it's impossible to be too descriptive. I don't know how you can do that. I think you can always describe more. And if you can always give the score, you can always give the inning. Um, that, that to me, is, is, is part of it. But I just try to challenge myself mechanically each and every year. And the stories, they'll, they'll come. Uh, it's harder and harder now. Players seem to be more distant than they were even you know, five, six, seven years ago. It's harder to get to know guys. There's more people around, and guys are a little bit more standoffish than, than I think they, than they were, once were. So that, to me, is, is another challenge. And now with, whole, with this whole COVID uh, pandemic, it's going to be even harder to, you, to, to share these stories, which is going to be a challenge. How do you overcome that? I don't know yet. That's going to be something we're going to find out here soon. Well, not even the um, not even not even the COVID side of things. Just with uh, you know, the fact that it's harder to get that time with people nowadays, and um, you're not able to get that the kind of access that maybe you were used to getting, as you said, six, seven, eight years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, and you know, a lot of it now. I just try to get cell phone numbers of, of, of players if I need to ask them something because I just don't want because I've I've done just I don't have this this lengthy minor league resume, right? That's that's something that people bring up to me a lot, but I've done just about everything. I think over my career, I've done a lot of different sports for some good pay, some no pay, some was just a meal ticket, uh, a lot of driving, all that different, you name it, but. The access to players has has changed over the years. The days of just you know being the only media personnel personality around and walking up to guys that that's long gone. So now it's about trying to get cell phone numbers from guys because I just don't want to wait around for them by their locker if they're eating if they're getting treatment and I'm wasting time that I could be doing something else with. So I just try to shift that maybe get a cell phone number now and. And just try to and try to go that that road, but down that road. But it's hard. It's it's not easy to get. Um, I try to pick my spots um, more or less before the game. I'll go in the clubhouse before the game. I'm there every day. Uh, I'll go about 15 minutes around. If there's a player that I didn't see that I really needed to get something from, then I may go back down during BP. But I'm spending less time on the field than I was a few years ago because I just get the impression that they don't want us there. And it's on, that's when they're out there working. That's when they're you know around their teammates and around their coaches. So the days of me, you know, putting my arm up against the turtle shell, that, that to me is probably gone, which isn't a bad thing. You know, that that's, that's where the players work and that's their time. But those days when I used to do that with just ease and it seemed like it was welcoming, I, I think the game is shifting away from that, certainly for, for, for people like me. Now, former players, analysts, that's a different story. But for just a play-by-play broadcaster, I think those days of just being able to do that are probably in the past. How do you get seen as Corey, the, the good guy, that we don't mind him being around and we'll talk to him about anything, as opposed to... Corey, the radio guy, who uh, who was curious about this, that, and the other for for the air. I mean, I, I think for me, I just I'm just careful about my opinion, and this is where some friends and I, colleagues, we we differed. We've had good heated conversations over drinks over this, but <laughs> I'm, I'm fine giving my opinion if I'm asked. So throughout a normal season, I, I go on, you know, Twins affiliates and their radio shows throughout the week, and I don't shy away from tough questions. If they're if I'm asked a tough question, I'll gladly give my answer. 
But I, I, I believe my job is to call the game. My job is to call the game, and I lean on Dan to provide the analysis. Hmm. I think I can get myself in trouble if I start questioning pitch selection, if I question route running, if, if I question strategy. That, to me, is where I can get myself in trouble. Do I know the game? Sure. But am I an expert? No way am I an expert. I learn more about the game every year. I, I hope the day never comes when I feel like I've learned everything about the game because it's always evolving. It's always changing. I'm a big fan of the analytics and sabermetrics, which is a challenge doing that in radio because it's a lot of numbers, uh, some acronyms in there as well, and you try to bunch them all together, you might lose some people, but that, those are risks I'm willing to take as long as you separate them and you kind of, once in a while, if not on a weekly basis, remind the listeners what they all mean. I just, I, I just, I'm there for players. I'm open to hosting their charitable uh, initiatives, their, 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 their dinners, their luncheons, whatever. If you start saying no to that stuff, that's when you get yourself in trouble. But I just back off. I back off a little bit, and I've done that over time. Um, and I don't think I need to command the room. That's another thing. That if I'm in, if I'm in the clubhouse, I'm not just kind of hanging around. I'm in there for for a reason and a purpose. And once I get my answers, then I get out. So I think in a way, less is more has been working out for me better mm. in recent years than it was earlier. Uh, I want to ask about your voice uh, quickly too, just because like you've got a, you've got a good resonant broadcast voice when you're just talking here. Um, how, how long have you sounded like this? <laughs> and what was kind of the work in, in that went into to creating that, uh, that instrument? You know, I'd love to tell you it was all the, the same stuff you heard that, you know, just, you know, your diaphragm and, and comes into play. But I, I think as I was younger, I was talking too fast. And I think that's what stands out when I listen to some tapes now is that just slow down. Everything, I think, sounds better if you just slow down. Now, it doesn't have to be so slow, but I think if you just slow down your pace, you slow down your breathing. And I, and I worked with a vocal coach in town. Um when in uh, Minneapolis, not long after I moved here, because after my first year, I just thought I was running out of breath on triples in the corner, on exciting plays that I, I don't think I was inflecting the way that I wanted to. So I worked with a vocal coach about how to slow some things down and, and do some breathing exercises that I still do to this day. Um, so my voice, I think, over time has just has just matured, and I, it used to be somebody else's voice. I used to get a lot of comparisons to Tom Brenneman because I loved doing Tom Brenneman comps when I was younger. I would just do a lot of Brenneman impressions, and, and I still I do a lot of John Sterling impressions. And I just, it just became somebody else. And it was a challenge working. It wasn't so much my voice, but what was coming out of my mouth, not how I sounded, but the words. In 2007, the Cubs had an outfielder named Matt Merton, but Pat would call him Matt Merton. So then when I would come on for the fifth inning, what was I supposed to say? Do I, do I still say Merton or do I say Merton? And then I, I started saying Merton. And then Dave Bennett, my boss, uh, he said, just say Merton. <laughs> just let Pat, let Pat say Merton. You just say Merton. And, um, and it just kind of, it kind of, I learned from there how to just get comfortable with my own voice. 
and not try to sound like Pat, not try to sound like Tom Brenneman, but just, you know, be myself. And as the years have gone on, when the moment gets exciting, I back away from the mic a little bit, so I don't want to overmodulate. But I still want to get it in. I want that excitement to, to crescendo, and I want to hit all the right notes. But I don't want it to, to sound crappy because I was screaming. So I just I think over time you just get comfortable with it. But to me, it, it's, it always boils down to breathing and pacing. If I do that, then more times than not, my voice will hang in there. What'd you learn going to a, a vocal coach um, at that point in your career too, and and. I, I, I guess humbling yourself to, to be able to say like, Hey, I, I, I want to make a couple of tweaks and changes here. Yeah. But you know, another reason that was, it was, it was important to do it was because the white Sox are in the same division and there, there's a word that I struggle saying. And to this day, I'm not comfortable saying the word cellular. <laughs> I have to say it really slow and slowly. So the White Sox used to play. I'm so happy they changed the name of their ballpark to guaranteed race field. But when we would go to U.S. Cellular Field, see how slow I had to do it there, the two L's is tricky. And it just is one of those that I just get, like when I say particularly, that's one that I'm not sure if I just said it there, if I hit every syllable or if I missed one. So that to me, there were just, I was missing Syllables. I don't think I was enunciating everything in a way that I that I wanted to. That I think you know Pat does really well, and, and Len Casper does really well, and Brian Anderson and Scott Fransky. I think you know these these guys that that just call all these big moments. You just never question what word was that. So those were some of the things that I was really focusing on, and I had a speech impediment when I was younger. Um, I, I had a hard time with R's and W's. And that's why when I went to Milwaukee, the last player I wanted to see was, was Ricky Weeks, because there were times I was going to say Wiki Weeks and the Detroit Red Wings. And sure enough, the Twins AAA team is the Rochester uh-huh. Red Wings. I was like, it could be another team, any other team, please. But that was something that, to this day, if I have to connect R&W, I'll know it beforehand, but I have to really slow down. So the, the, the genesis behind the vocal coach was when I went back, because I listened to myself probably more in 2012 than I have any other year. It was my first year with the Twins, and I wanted to see how it sounded, how it was going, and I just felt like I was missing out on words. And I just that was the genesis behind it was to make sure that I'm, that I'm not losing a syllable uh, when I'm describing action. How much do you listen to yourself now? Not too often. I listen back more on TV than I do on radio, and I'm having a really good time doing TV because it was it's such a it's such a drastic shift uh, to do the different medium, and the challenge was can I really talk less after doing all this radio? Can I really talk less and doing basketball, but then doing football last year on FS one, I had such a good time and doing these PAC 12 after dark games uh, with Shane Green and Petros Papadakis. I just wanted to see in my mind, was I talking less in my mind? I thought I was, but then in reality, <laughs> was I really doing it? And I would, and I, well, it's funny. We talked, the first question you asked me about, you know, my time in college, one of the guys I did radio with in college was my producer on, on football this year for FS1 and Mike Principato. So it's, it's kind funny. of come full circle that we're back together again. But, um, so I would, I would lean on him a lot and say, Hey, I, I tell him before we start, 
make sure I'm not, make sure I'm off my board, get my eyes off my board and watch the field. And secondly, just be mindful of what's coming out of my mouth, how often it's coming out of my mouth and make sure that I'm using program that I'm, that I'm talking about what, what you're showing. And that to me, I, I really am having fun doing television because of the team aspect radio. You know, we are our own producers and directors. Now we still work as a team, but we are our own. We, we get this blank canvas to paint and it's so fun. What kind of brush do we want to use? What kind of color colors do we want to use? How do we want to you know paint this picture today? That's so much fun. TV, whole different challenge. TV, you, it has to be a team. And if it's not, then it's going to show and you're going to make a lot of people working in the truck look really bad if you're not on the same page with them. You've loved radio more originally, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, radio radio has always been my first love. Um, There's no doubt about that. Radio has been... Uh, my my first love just because of Harry Carey, you know, growing up and, and WGN radio and right. hearing my dad tell stories about Jack Brickhouse and, and all those great cup games he used to listen to as a kid on the radio. So radio was kind of where I was going. Um, I had some professors in college that were pushing me more on, on doing TV news. I had one, one of my uh, senior year, uh, Bob Lissett was um, one of my professors senior year. And he told me, don't rule out, you know, doing TV news. And um, yeah, I love politics. I'm really into politics, always have been. So I, that's always been in the back of my mind. But I just love being at an event. Uh, you know, being a sports anchor was never something that that was interesting to me. Um, but being at an event, it's unscripted and calling those big moments. Uh, that was that was something that I just knew that that's where I wanted to go. And radio seemed to be the best route for me, especially you know that I had experience doing so in college. Corey, last thing, I'll let you go on this note. Um, I, I wanted to go back to the very beginning of your career. We'll, we'll go secularly here. Um, one of your first jobs was with the Auburn Double Days, correct? Yeah, yeah, sure was. Um, I was just curious, your your thoughts on kind of where baseball is as a uh, as a sport right now in terms of, uh, I guess, how sad it will be to see some of those teams likely go away. Yeah, the New York Penn League, um, you know, that would probably be in the, in the contraction plans um, that, uh, that I'm reading with MLB and, and minor league baseball. But that's it, – it's terrible. It's, it's devastating. It's devastating for not just us, Joel, as broadcasters, but for players, for communities who just – who thrive on those summers, those small towns, uh, thrive on those summers to get the chance to go out. And it's such a family experience. The ticket prices are cheap. Concessions are cheap. Uh, the player access to get autographs. Uh, there's nothing like it. So it, it's a shame because um, I, I, I look back on that, that summer that I had, um, you know, the 19, what, 98, I think it was Auburn Double Days, and that was a really good team. I mean, you think off a New York Penn League team, maybe one, uh, two players will reach the big leagues. Well, there were a handful of guys that were on that team from Roy Oswald to Johan Santana to Morgan Ensberg to Colin Porter to Keith Ginter. Um those were there. There were a lot of guys that were on that on that team that reached the big leagues, um, which is which is saying something. And they were the they were the co-champions that summer because you have to finish. Did you say Johan Santana? Labor Day? 
Did you say what? Johan? Did you say, did you say Johan? Johan Santana was yeah. on the team, yep. My goodness. Johan Sant- I picked Roy Oswald up at the airport. That was part of my job because <laughs> uh, I did PA for home games, did play-by-play on the road. Uh, but part of my job was to pick up uh, players at the airport in Syracuse and take them out to Auburn. And, and Roy Oswald was one of the guys that I picked up, and he called me shrimp all summer. <laughs> and then when I finally crossed paths with him uh, later on at the, at the big league level, we had a good laugh about it. But uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a great experience for me, and I, and I learned – uh, great deal, and it was a good lesson too. That you know, I started to think about you know who was listening. This is more than just mom and dad or my brother or family, but about you know who's listening, who's out there. And can I can I can I make this experience better for any individual? Can I put at ease the pain that this individual may be feeling? Uh, in terms of their personal life, if they, if the bills are piling up, they can't pay their rent. Uh, maybe something is going on at home. They're looking for an escape, and it was summertime. And to think about, let this be that escape, and and that's how I, I viewed it. And and over time, I haven't lost sight of that. And over time too, I haven't lost sight of the fact that I'm not going to change. You know what I do just because one person doesn't like it. I read an interview years ago. I think it was with Dave Matthews was interviewed in Rolling Stone uh, a long, long time ago. And Dave Matthews was asked about audience and about a show, and he and he mentioned how out of a hundred people, if there was one person who did not like his, his set list, his show, that was going to weigh on him all night long into his next show and so on and so forth. And I thought of that and I never forgot that. And then I always, I always thought, okay, as the years went by, how can I prove that one person, how can I get that person back on, on my side? But now I'm of the mindset that that I don't care that if there's 99% of the people that like what we do and what I do, then I'm going to, I'm not going to change just because that one person doesn't like how I sound or how I say it. And that that just evolved over time because I was so I was so involved early on. If I got if I got an email, if I got a tweet from somebody that didn't like what I said, I would say, okay, I'll do better and I'll I'll try to fix it. But now it's like I might respond to that person and just say, you know, thank you for listening. Sorry, I didn't like it. Uh, take care. But I'm not going to change the way. I say it anymore just because if there's one or two people that don't like what we're doing, but the majority does, then why would I, why would I upset that group of people? And that's just taken some, some years and, and maturation on my part to understand. Corey, how do people find more of you if they uh, want to listen or find you on social media? Uh, yeah, my Twitter account is, is my name, uh, at Corey Provis, but uh, I'm on Instagram and I don't post a whole lot, but, uh, but at Corey Provis, by all means, reach out. Um, but, uh, it's been, it's been a summer of adjustment for, for everybody. Uh, and, and, uh, for me, I, I have a, I have a seven and a four year old, so I've gotten more time with them than I ever have in my life. So that's been the silver lining has been being with my family through all this, but, uh, by all means, it looks like, looks like baseball is going to pick back up here pretty soon. Um, and hopefully everything works out for you, Joel, in the fall and everything in the fall and the winter and calendar can, can play without interruption because that would be important. All right, that is Corey Provis joining us here on PXPCast. More baseball coming your way next week. We'll talk with the voice, or one of the voices, of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Charlie Steiner, and we will get into a ton of things ranging from uh, working with the Yankees to working for ESPN to working for the Dodgers to working for the USFL to how he went from radio to television and back to radio, and there is some uh, phenomenal storytelling with Charlie Steiner 
it's going to be a really good time next week. Many thanks to Corey Provis for this week. Here's to baseball coming back soon. My name is Joel Gannett. The music is from Marshmallow. This is PXPCast, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.